You are listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. Transthyretin amyloidosis is an underdiagnosed progressive disease state that results in significant morbidity and mortality. Previously, options for therapy have been limited. However, in recent years, therapies have emerged to prevent disease progression and to manage symptoms of polyneuropathy. Today, disease-modifying treatments continue to be studied. This is a conversational interview which will focus on emerging therapies for the management of ATTR. On this PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast, a thorough discussion around current and investigational therapies will be covered. Key takeaways and practical points for our pharmacist listeners will be the focus. Be sure to get all your podcast continuing education by visiting PharmacyTimes.org. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, we're back with PTCE Pharmacy Connect. I have gotten some comments I just want to give shout outs to thank you pharmacy students for telling us how you have appreciated the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. It's great to hear from you. Thank you. You are the future of our industry. You are the future pharmacist. So that means a lot to us. You know, we're going to have a topic today, and, and this is something that I know a little about, but that's why we have two amazing pharmacists here today to dig into this. And I want both of them to really take time to not only talk with our audience and, and talk with you the through and to you, the listeners, but also to each other and, and really learning together. You know, before I dig in and, and we get into this topic, I do want to hear a little background on our guests just for our audience sake. And I want to start off with Dr. Savetlana Goldman. Welcome to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. Um, Just to give you a little background, so I had graduated from University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy and then went on to do a residency in Asheville, North Carolina at the VA there. I worked for eight years in a cardiology clinic at University of Virginia, and now I'm at UC Davis where I work with my counterpart um, in helping build our cardiac amyloidosis program and work with a lot of our advanced heart failure patients. And I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're super excited to have you. And I have to give a shout out to Pitt and Duquesne University there in my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So go Pittsburgh, go Steelers. Thank you. And now I want to introduce Dr. Yvette Hillier. I'm excited to have you here. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast and the PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Thanks so much, Todd. Um, Like you mentioned, my name is Yvette Hillier. I went to pharmacy school at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. So I'll give a shout out to all my pharmacy friends and family back in the Midwest moved out to sunny California to do my PGY1 and PGY2 years of residency in ambulatory care, moved on to work a little bit with transitions of care and now work with Svetlana, like she mentioned, in our specialty cardiology 
Clinic. And we're very excited to talk with you today about a topic that is very near and dear to our hearts. I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Renee Chestnut at Drake University, an amazing champion of our industry and, and what she does for uh, education. So a shout out to Drake too. This is exciting. We're going to get into uh, this topic right now. There is currently a growing awareness regarding the diagnosis of ATTR and and the renewed hope for treatment in, the, in this rare disease state. And often we think of the specialty pharmacy sector and how specialty pharmacy medications play into this and rare disease states. And this requires extra attention also a collaborative multi multidisciplinary approach between our pharmacists, our specialists, our physicians, even care coordinators and uh, business administrators, where we have this approach where pharmacists are leading and playing that critical uh, vital role. And I want to start with um, with Dr. Yvette. Yeah, I want you to, if you could tell us a little bit more about how a TTR typically presents in patients. And then also some of the complexities that, that you understand and you've, you've experienced throughout the years and in your research. Absolutely, Todd. So transthyretin amyloidosis, also known as ATTR, a little bit less of a mouthful, is really an under-recognized life-threatening disease where we have these transthyretin or TTR proteins that become unstable they form fibrils, or you can also think of them as coils, that then go on to deposit in different organs and tissues throughout the body. This, of course, disrupts the structure and the function of those organs or tissues. ATTR really is a progressive disease, so it can get worse over time as these fibrils continue to accumulate. And it can be either hereditary, which would result from an autosomal dominant trait variation in that transthyretin gene, either HATTR or ATTRV, V being for variant, or it can be sporadic, and this would be referred to as ATTRWT or wild type. Now, common signs and symptoms that we often see patients presenting with can include many different things. So we often see peripheral or autonomic polyneuropathy as well as cardiomyopathy. And as the disease progresses, these may develop into different sensory motor impairment, gastrointestinal dysfunction, ocular manifestations, or heart failure. We've talked a little bit about how these fibrils can accumulate in the different tissues. So due to this infiltration in those different organ systems throughout the body, we also see patients presenting with things like carpal tunnel syndrome, lumbar stenosis, and bicep tendon rupture. So you'll often hear these symptoms referred to as red flag symptoms, and those can really be a key to aid in diagnosis. Now, since the clinical constellation of ATTR symptoms can mimic other disease states, as I've you know, mentioned here, really the recognition and diagnosis can be challenging, and, and we do see that misdiagnoses can occur. Now, sadly, if left untreated, ATTR can continue to progress into a multi-system complication and death from cardiac failure, renal failure, infection, or severe cachexia. 
You mentioned so many great points, Yvette, and how frustrating this can be for patients, you know, having this wide array of symptoms. Often we see patients in clinic and they've seen multiple specialists, primary care, cardiology, nephrology, hematology, and it really takes this multidisciplinary faceted approach to help with diagnosis. And as you mentioned, Todd, I think at the center, you know, as pharmacists, we can kind of be a liaison between all of these specialties and really help the patients in this unique disease state. Exactly. Svetlana, exactly. That's exactly where I kind of wanted to enter in to to understanding more of this. We're going to dig down into this next uh, section, which um, gets more much more granular. And I want to start off just with recent advances in, in cardiac imaging and biomarkers have have improved the accuracy and efficiency by which cardiac amyloidosis is diagnosed. Can you review some of these changes um, that, that aid clinicians in a more timely diagnosis? Early recognition is really important and diagnosis begins with a high clinical suspicion after ruling out other processes such as infiltrative processes, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or constructive pericarditis. Imaging such as echocardiography or MRI are often part of the evaluation. The screen begins by assessing the presence of monoclonal light chains, which is used to rule out systemic light chain amyloidosis. If abnormalities are identified, patients are referred urgently for hematologic consultation. If abnormalities are not identified, the widespread adoption of a bone scintigraphy scan, or also known as a PYP or pyrophosphate scan, has greatly increased our ability to diagnose transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy. This particular scan examines the myocardial uptake of this radioactive tracer. This has allowed us to diagnose without the need for invasive cardiac biopsies and has improved patient access to potentially life-prolonging therapies. Specialty pharmacists are just uh, some of my uh, most interesting and favorite interviews that I've really heard them dig into the certain treatments of some of these rare diseases. And I want to kind of continue to to kind of peel back the onion of this and, and, and understand this more, especially specialty pharmacy and and, and what they do for their uh, their patients and treatments. Because as I said in the beginning, insurance, um, prior authorization, um, understanding comorbidity, um, especially if that's involved, there's so much more to this than just this one um, component of treatment and, and even dealing with family. So I think of the pharmacist out there listening right now and my most favorite providers and what you coordinate and what you do, how you organize and manage. What are some of the clinical and economic burdens of ATTR on patients, caregivers, and the healthcare system alike in, in general, um, Dr. Yvette? Well, you know, due to the multi-organ involvement of ATTR, patients may experience multiple symptoms that affect their healthcare-related quality of life. And as these symptoms progress over time, patients experience greater reductions in autonomy, 
ranging from higher dependence on caregivers for their activities of daily living, all the way to the inability to engage in work. So you can imagine really how devastating this can be for patients. Cardiac involvement is the main determinant of prognosis. Median survival time, if left untreated, ranges from only about two and a half to 3.6 years for ATTR variant and ATTR wild type, respectively. Now, the true economic burden of ATTR is pretty difficult to ascertain, you know, due to that rarity of the disease, potential delays in diagnosis, and associated comorbidities for which patients may need to seek treatment. Healthcare utilization in this population does appear to be most expensive in the year following diagnosis. And this makes sense because this often involves costs associated with hospitalizations, diagnostic testing, and of course, pharmacotherapy. Specific cost estimates related to amyloidosis are pretty limited in the literature, but there is one study that suggests an annual cost of $64,000, about $34,000 of which is attributed to inpatient expenses, $24,000 to outpatient expenses, and $6,000 to medications. I do wanna point out though, and this is a pretty important caveat, that this study examined Medicare claims data maybe between 2014 and 2016, which was prior to the development of the novel agents we're going to discuss today. And as we'll come to learn, they are really significantly more expensive than what was looked at here in this study. Dr. Hellier, this is really it's testimony to the pressures that are part of treatment and part of dealing with serious um, disease states as, as an individual, as a person, as the family member, because of the financial stresses that are, are put on this. And my heart goes out to those families. And, and I know that especially pharmacists and pharmacists are, are sensitive to that. So that's so good to have the guidance of pharmacists in so many ways that know how to navigate the system. Um, thank you. So let's delve into the current and emerging therapies for ATTR. And we are shifting gears, uh, Dr. Goldman, but I, I really wanna understand how has the treatment landscape changed in the past few years? There has been significant progress, Todd, that's been made at understanding the pathophysiology of this disease state that's really paving the way for promising pharmacotherapy. In 2018, there were three randomized controlled trials that truly transformed the landscape of ATTR treatment, adding FDA-approved treatment options for both ATTR cardiomyopathy and hereditary ATTR polyneuropathy. What's really exciting is now we have specific therapies that target different steps, including TTR silencers that block the synthesis of transthyretin, TTR stabilizers, which inhibit the rate-determining step of amyloid fibril formation, and agents that disrupt and clear the fibrils. In moving on and in understanding the specific medications, the medications that have been FDA approved in the treatment for cardiomyopathy. Um, so, and 
can you kind of expand upon that? The what's what's approved right now, um, Dr. Goldman? This one in particular, um, we deal with on a very um, intimate basis since we work in the cardiology clinic. We have tefamidus is our agent that's FDA approved for hereditary and wild type ATTR cardiomyopathy. To understand the mechanism of how this medication works, we have to take a little step back and look at the disease process. So TTR usually exists as a tetramere or what you could think of as a shape of a four leaf clover but it can also separate into individual leaves or dissociate into monomers. For patients with amyloidosis caused by a mutation in that transthyretin gene, these leaves can misfold and aggregate forming those amyloid fibrils that collect in tissues and organs, thus leading to dysfunction. Tefamidus acts as a TTR stabilizer binding to a specific thyroxin binding site of transthyretin, which stabilizes the tetramere or our four-leaf clover and prevents the dissociation into monomers, which can then misfold into those fibrils. This medication was approved based on the results of the ATTRACT study, which enrolled 441 patients with ATTR cardiomyopathy. Patients in this study were predominantly wild type, about 75%, and patients with New York Heart Association class four were excluded. So when we think about generalizability to the patients we're seeing in clinic. Tefaminus was associated with a significantly lower all-cause mortality, lower cardiovascular-related hospitalizations, and reduced the decline in functional capacity. These results translated to a number needed to treat of eight to prevent one death over a two and a half year period and four to prevent one hospitalization per year. Tefamidus is supplied as a 20 milligram capsule to be taken as four capsules daily or a 61 milligram capsule to be taken as one capsule daily. This medication was really well tolerated and in the studies, they really did not find significant adverse effects, which is unique for medication, and no associated monitoring was required. You know, a lot of times when we counsel patients on this medication, we hear them say that it really seems too good to be true. But in any case, you know, the once daily dosing and that absence of routine monitoring may make this medication a convenient option option for patients, especially as they're starting to have any sort of limiting side, side effects from their disease process. What about outside of tefamidus? Um, are there any other options within this class of TTR stabilizers? Yes, Todd. So we have a couple options. First, we have diflunosol, which um, some of you may know as a generic non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug or NSAID. And commonly these are used to treat arthritis or pain. Diflunosol works similarly to tefamidus as a TTR stabilizer. 
However, what's really important to recognize is this medicine is not FDA approved for this indication and is used off label and also may have side effects that might deter us from using in a lot of our patients. Another agent that's on the horizon is acaramidus or AG10. There's a large phase three trial that's currently underway to assess the effects of orally administered acaramidus in preventing major adverse cardiovascular events in ATTR cardiomyopathy. And a previous phase two trial with this medication has demonstrated good tolerability and successful reduction in serum transthyretin levels. So it'll be exciting to see more results for that one in the future. Okay, so you mentioned this disease state involving mutations in the TTR gene. So which, which of the therapies have been approved to target this genetic defect and reduce the actual production of TTR? Gosh, you know, I really think this is one of the breakthroughs of drug development, medications that can silence certain genes. So in order to understand this new class of medications, we really need to take a step back and understand the phenomena of RNA interference, where small pieces of RNA can stop protein translation by binding to messenger RNAs that code for certain proteins. So of course, in our case, we're talking about TTR, transthyretin. The discovery of this RNA interference was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize back in 2006. And patisseron, the medication I'll talk about next here, was the first ever RNA interference-based drug that was approved by the FDA. So patisseron is a small interfering RNA agent approved for the treatment of polyneuropathy associated with hereditary ATTR. It targets and silences the TTR messenger RNA for both wild type and mutant TTR, blocking further production of TTR in the liver. So of course, this prevents further accumulation of fibrils and slows down that progression of polyneuropathy. Patisseron was first approved based on the results of the Apollo trial, which assessed the efficacy and safety of patisseron in the treatment of 225 patients with hereditary ATTR along with polyneuropathy. To give you a little idea of who was enrolled in this study, roughly 50% of the patients required assistance with ambulation, so you can use that to think of their functional status along with the fact that patients with an NYHA class of greater than two were excluded from this trial. The primary outcome here looked at improvements in neuropathy, while secondary endpoints assessed quality of life, activities of daily living, nutritional status, and autonomic symptoms as well. What we found was that patients who received patisseron had a six-point improvement in their modified neuropathy impairment score, compared to a 28-point reduction in the placebo group by 18 months of treatment. 56% of the patients receiving patisseron experienced reversal of neuropathy-related impairment. Again, that was assessed by that modified neuropathy impairment score. Now, in regards to quality of life, patients treated with patisseron had a 6.7-point improvement in their baseline quality of life score, compared to a 14.4 point reduction in the placebo group after their 18 months of treatment. 
51% of patients in that patisserone group experienced significant benefit in the secondary outcomes compared to placebo as well. If we dive a little bit deeper here, we see in a subgroup analysis of patients specifically with ATTR cardiomyopathy, patisserone was also associated with beneficial effects on cardiac structure and function, including reduction in left ventricular wall thickness, NT pro BNP levels, and even a composite endpoint of cardiovascular hospitalization or mortality. And this has led to further interest in exploring patisserone as a treatment for ATTR cardiomyopathy. That subgroup analysis is really exciting and promising to see that, you know, we may have some more potential options for cardiomyopathy. We talked about tefamidus being one of the treatments. It'll be really nice to see if, you know, there's more data for patisserone in this indication as well. Is there anything that's on the horizon of it? Yes, it most certainly will be interesting to see how we get more information over the coming years looking at these agents. You know, specifically for Patisseron Svetlana, we have Apollo B. It's a phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled multi-center study currently underway. And it's evaluating the efficacy and safety of Patisseron in patients with ATTR cardiomyopathy. There have been over 300 patients that have been enrolled globally and randomized to receive either that patisserone treatment or placebo for one year, and then as followed by an open label extension period. So here, what we'll be looking at in terms of primary outcomes are going to include changes in a patient's baseline six-minute walk test after a year, and secondary outcomes are going to look at healthcare-related quality of life, mortality, and cardiovascular events, in addition to cardiac amyloid involvement manifestations. And what's really exciting about this, Svetlana, is that results are actually expected to be released in mid-2022. So we're on our way. Not only do I get to talk with pharmacists, educating other pharmacists, and be able to promote this and support um, pharmacists' continuing education, which you could stop there, but being able to do other things to have pharmacists like yourselves bring announcements um, to listeners is exciting about these new novel treatments and in the treatment options. And um, Dr. Goldman, what are some important pearls for pharmacists to be aware of in terms of, of dosing and safety? The patisserone is supplied as a solution for intravenous infusion that's dosed every three weeks. And it's important to note that dosing is based on body weight. So for patients that are less than 100 kilograms, the recommended dose is 0.3 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks. And for those that are weighing 100 kilograms or more, the dose is 30 milligrams. What's really important for us to note as pharmacists is pre-medication is required with corticosteroids, acetaminophen, and antihistamines in order to reduce the risk of infusion reactions. Some of the typical infusion reactions that patients may, ex may experience include flushing, back pain, nausea, abdominal pain, shortness of breath, or headache. 
In addition, patisserian can also decrease the levels of vitamin A and supplementation is recommended to avoid deficiency. While some insurances may cover home infusions given by a nurse, most patients will need to travel to an infusion center to receive this medication. As pharmacists, there are always so many considerations to keep track of when we're evaluating therapies for patients. Thanks for sharing all of that, Svetlana. You know, I think that these are important notes to consider, especially given the disruption our patients may see in their morbidity or their mobility, excuse me, due to their disease state and even our current healthcare landscape. I mean, traveling to a clinic or receiving medication this frequently could potentially be challenging for some. So something to always keep a keen eye out for when discussing therapy options with a patient. You entrepreneurial pharmacist out there, if your ears just kind of, uh, you know, uh, rang there for a second, it's because there's opportunity in front of you. Imagine pharmacists, not only that understand specialty disease states, but imagine you that understand what these patients are going through ended up opening up these infusion centers throughout the country that are, are desperately needed, especially in those pockets where, which are considered uh, pharmacist deserts. Uh, pharmacy deserts, and and it's it's uh, it's becoming more prevalent and knowledgeable. So thank you so much for that that overview. Um, and I'm thinking of those challenges. Are there any similar medications that a patient could self-administer? Uh, since getting to an effusion center, as we all know, can sometimes be a challenge for our patients. Yes, I think there are several on the horizon. So we have Revuceran, which is another small interfering RNA agent. And this was developed um, and formulated to allow for subcutaneous administration. While earlier trials did not display severe adverse events, there was an increase in mortality that was seen in the Endeavor Phase three trial for this medication that resulted in early discontinuation. While most events were attributed to cardiac death of heart failure, they were unable to explain a drug-related mechanism. A post hoc safety investigation did not show meaningful difference between patients who had died compared to those who had not, and no differences were seen in cardiac biomarkers or cardiovascular hospitalizations. Another similar molecule Vutreciran is actually currently being studied, and this is also an investigational RNA interference agent that targets the messenger RNA to block the production of transthyretin. However, this one is administered subcutaneously once quarterly, so really having a potential more convenient option for patients. Data on the use of Vertriceran has been reported through the Helios A phase three trial. Preliminary results have demonstrated improvement in neuropathy symptoms, reduction in serum transthyretin levels, and improvements in quality of life, gait speed, and cardiac markers for patients treated with Vertriceran compared with worsening symptoms in the placebo arm. The FDA has actually accepted a new drug application for Vutriceran for the treatment of polyneuropathy of hereditary ATTR 
and set an action date of April 2022. So lots of exciting things coming this year. The upcoming Helios B trial will investigate the efficacy and safety of Vutriceran 25 milligrams subcutaneous injection every three months compared to placebo in patients with ATTR amyloidosis with cardiomyopathy. So again, looking at both indications for cardiomyopathy and we have polyneuropathy. The initiation of new advances in ATTR amyloidosis program was announced in May 2021 so following the initial study period, a biannual dosing study is being conducted as part of a treatment extension where patients will be randomized to receive Vutriceran 25 milligrams quarterly or 50 milligrams biannually for an additional 18 months. What about with regards to TTR silencers? Uh, we talked about that. Um, about the options that uh, target RNA interference as a mechanism. Are there any other uh, medications that work in a similar pathway? There certainly are. So the next medication we have to discuss with you guys today is enotercin. Enotercin is an antisense oglionucleotide, say that three times fast, oh. approved for the treatment of hereditary ATTR polyneuropathy. So this medication binds to the TTR mRNA and works in a similar fashion as patisiron as a TTR silencer targeting that hepatic synthesis of TTR, thus reducing those serum TTR levels. In this case, the neuro-TTR study was a phase three randomized double-blind placebo control study that evaluated the efficacy and safety of enotercin over 15 months. The primary endpoints here evaluated neuropathy, again, by that modified neuropathy impairment, as well as the Norfolk Quality of Life Diabetic Neuropathy Questionnaire. A decrease in serum TTR levels of at least 50% was seen in approximately 90% of patients. So quite a good number of patients in that case. Additionally, there was a follow-up open-label extension study, and here they found long-term treatment with enotercin maintained that health-related quality of life in patients for up to three years. So pharmacists all about that line of safety that they, they just, um, that's just who they are. That's what exactly what you guys are. You're that, that barrier and, and that safety mechanism. And I, I'm also wondering the more insights. So providing us some insights again on the dosing and safety of this medication. Dr. Halier? Of course. So the recommended dosage of enotercin is 284 milligrams administered subcutaneously once weekly using a single dose pre-filled syringe. And this can be self-administered by the patient or given by a caregiver. So again, may give a little bit more flexibility to our patients. Patients most frequently report injection site reactions, nausea, headache, fatigue, and fever. It's very important to note though, and especially again through our pharmacist lens, that thrombocytopenia and glomerulonephritis were also seen with the use of enotericin, and this has led to a boxed warning. So 
Due to these boxed warnings, patients must be enrolled in REMS and receive routine blood tests to monitor both platelet count and kidney function. And as Svetlana mentioned earlier, patients taking these medications should be instructed to supplement with that daily recommended allowance of vitamin A. I know we've, we've talked a lot about different treatment options and Todd, you've kind of alluded to this. You know, we as pharmacists and working in the specialty realm can really play a role of kind of helping choose the best option based on each patient's unique characteristics. And as we mentioned, looking, you know, can they come to an infusion center? Are they able to self-administer a medication subcutaneously? Are they able to complete lab monitoring when it's needed? So taking all of these factors into play, we can really help choose the best agent for each patient based on their characteristics. And it's exciting to have different options available to choose from. Yeah, think think of that, Dr. Goldman, of how much stress you're alleviating a patient and a patient's family just by understanding the intricacies and the complexities of some of what these disease states create that go far beyond just the the just the treatment of the disease. It's it's all encompassing. It's it's that 360 degree view of your patients and pharmacists listening right now who are are listening for continuing education there's another component to this and this is this is what makes you special it's the relationship that you're building with what your patients are going through and you understanding it because of how many times you've helped a patient with that similar disease state and you know we've talked about a lot of different treatment options and there's obstacles there. Um, you know, what are the biggest obstacles that you're seeing in the practice for patients to get started on treatment, um, Dr. Goldman? So one of the biggest obstacles that we find is that there it may be a cost barrier. So currently, the average annual costs of the three FDA-approved therapies, Tefamidus, Petisiran, and Inotercin, are estimated from $225,000 to $450,000 a year. There are ongoing studies to look at the cost effectiveness of these therapies. And this obviously may create a hurdle for patients to have adequate access to essential therapies in this progressive and life-threatening disease. And especially concerning as we anticipate to have more patients being diagnosed with the improved diagnostic tools that we've discussed and increased recognition of this unique disease state. Pharmacists, again, and specialty pharmacists can truly assist with navigating these cost barriers, helping to look at cost-saving options, such as copay assistance and patient assistance programs through the manufacturer websites. And in practice, you know, we see this in clinic, we truly help patients and they're often, you know, in tears when we're able to get these medications approved and at an affordable cost for them and get them on treatments that are really going to prolong their life and make them feel better. This has been an absolutely enlightening conversation. And as we're winding down, we always want to give our listeners the insights of our of our pharmacists, of, of people that are leading healthcare in these specific uh, disease states and conditions. 
Um, so proud of you pharmacists out there and what you're doing. So thank you. So what would you say is the single most important takeaway um, for our pharmacists listening in today? Dr. Hillier. Gosh, you know, I think we have talked about a lot of really important information today and Hopefully there are lots of, of pearls that our audience can take away, but if you're going to hold me to it and make me choose just one, Todd, I think really understanding that patients living with untreated transthyretin amyloidosis experience significant morbidity and mortality, especially since this disease state has historically been so difficult to diagnose. I think that we're really lucky, you know, recent advancements in both diagnostics and therapy do demonstrate benefit in reducing disease progression, as well as improving those symptoms of polyneuropathy and quality of life in our patients. And, you know, as new therapies continue to emerge, patients may have increased access to disease-modifying therapies, which I think represents a wonderful opportunity for improved patient care in this population. I'll just add one comment. Um, you know, I think it's a really revolutionary time as far as adding treatments to our toolbox um, for this, what we thought was, you know, more of a rare disease state, but now is really coming to the forefront with better diagnostic tools. So definitely would say, you know, for the pharmacists out there, you know, as you're seeing some of these red flag symptoms and seeing um, these patients to kind of have this in the back of your mind too, and to really be an advocate for these patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you. You two are rock stars, Dr. Hillier, Dr. Goldman. Thank you so much for being part of this. Um, this is another added um, value to this series and to this podcast and the commitment of PTCE Pharmacy Connect and really delivering incredible content for our pharmacists uh, for continuing education. But obviously our future pharmacists are listening in too as well. So a shout out to our pharmacy students, uh, keep working. Uh, the future is yours and you are the future of pharmacy. So thank you so much. Thank you so much to PTCE Pharmacy Connect and the team. We appreciate you uh, joining us today for more information on um, PTCE Pharmacy Connect and all of your continuing education needs, please go to pharmacytimes.org and make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, at um, pharmacytimesce, as in continuing education, for all the latest updates in continuing education activities. We're excited. Thank you so much, pharmacist. You are our most favorite provider. If there is anything we can ever do for you in helping to alleviate the stress that you are all going through right now, and we know that you are, we appreciate you. Please let us know what we could do. We'll do anything that we can, and we have a very big network. Take a, take a look at pharmacypodcast.com. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.